Welcome to the Weave Podcast. My name is Sarah Resnick, and I'm the host of this podcast and the owner of the online weaving yarn shop, Gist Yarn and Fiber. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 59th episode of our little podcast. This episode is sponsored by Heddlecraft, a digital weaving magazine launched in 2013 and designed for the hand weaver who knows how to weave and wants to know more. If you're looking for a new resource to deepen your weaving knowledge, this is it. Heddlecraft is published six times a year, and a one-year subscription is $19.99. Each issue is based around a theme, which includes an educational article explaining the issues weave to help weavers understand how the weave is designed and woven. Following the educational article are the samples for the theme, primarily designed for the four- and eight-shaft weaver. Each issue is distributed directly to the subscriber's email account as a PDF, accompanied by the WIF files for weavers that use weaving software. Individual issues may also be purchased for $4.50. I really encourage you to go check it out. Visit www.heddlecraft.com for more info. And thank you to Heddlecraft for sponsoring this episode. This week on the podcast, I'm talking to Cameron Taylor-Brown. Cameron Taylor-Brown has been working in the worlds of fiber, education, and commerce since the 1970s. She studied at UC Berkeley and the Philadelphia College of Textiles and Science, and her work has been widely exhibited and published. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast today, Cameron. Welcome. Well, thank you, and I'm so happy to be with you. Can you start out by introducing yourself and sharing your own journey to becoming an artist and a weaver? Of course. How long of a version do you want? Uh, wherever you think it's best. <laughs> okay. okay, so um, so my name is Cameron Taylor Brown, and I've been weaving for over forty years, which kind of shocks me. But um, I started my interest in textiles in high school when I decided that I wanted to learn to sew, and then and so I made all my own clothes in high school, and then when I went to college, completely serendipitously. I ended up at uh, in a community that was the center of the contemporary fiber arts movement, but at you know eighteen or nineteen years old, who knows that? So I had no clue that that's where I was. Um, th- this was UC Berkeley, and um, I stumbled into an anthropology class taught by um, someone who was. Uh, seminal uh, in the movement, Ed Rossback. I don't know if you know his name, but he was uh, he was a great at that particular time. And he taught a class that he with the unlikely name of Antecedents of Industrial Textiles. Doesn't that sound fascinating? Yeah. Well, I don't know about that, but it was a wonderful <laughs> class. And he would bring uh, suitcases full of textiles that he collected from around the world, and he would proceed to pull them out one by one and tell stories about each piece of cloth and the maker of the cloth and the culture that the cloth came from. And I was just completely hooked. And I thought, I want to learn more. And so I asked him if I could take more classes from him. And at that point, uh, UC Berkeley didn't have an undergraduate program in Um, textiles anymore. So he invited me to learn to weave with his graduate students. So that was pretty amazing. And I just, from there, just completely switched gears and 
decided, I want to make this happen. I want to make this my life because I love textiles. So he was one of those people who just, you know, one of those early influences that just changes your life. So, Mm. so that's my story. What were one of the first few things that you wove where you really felt like it was a medium that you wanted to keep exploring? Really early. I mean, it seems like I just, I loved yarn. I loved the stuff of textiles. And I think I walked into a yarn store for the first time and just went, oh my gosh, this is amazing. What is this stuff? And then what can I make with it? What can I do with it? And so I just, I just wanted to learn more and more and more. And so I, what was lovely about Berkeley at that time was there were a couple of independent fiber schools. So I took, uh, I took classes at, I think it was called Pacific Basin. I took something else at, called Fiberworks. And they were run, as I recall, by uh, Ed Rossback's like, graduated students who wanted to stay in the area. So there was this, this wonderful ecosystem of fiber going on all around me. So I finished up my uh, undergraduate degree at UC Berkeley. And then I went to the Philadelphia College of Textiles and Science for a couple of years um, because I wanted to explore the idea of actually making a living in textiles because the other thing that I noticed was that a lot of people ended up waiting tables or working retail and I didn't want to do that. So I, I drove my little car to the East Coast and lived in Philadelphia and went to college and got my first job uh, designing fabrics for a small mill in Connecticut. Later taught at the Philadelphia College of Textiles and by then I was married and my husband was also from California and we got homesick and moved back to California and I've been back here since the early 80s and have always been able to combine, you know, my passion with, with what I do during the week. I've always made my living in textiles, which is really wonderful. Yeah. So. Yeah, that is. What, um, what are the different buckets of the things that you do now to make a living from textiles? Um, well, what I, what I did for many years, um, we call this a portfolio career as opposed to uh, several part-time jobs cobbled together. Doesn't it sound much better? It does. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so my portfolio career for many years is my day job was a seasonal, uh, was very seasonal. I was a, a representative for a number of different uh, wonderful yarn companies. So uh, my job was to put buyers and sellers together, and I worked with a lot of retail yarn shops and some uh, higher-end designer manufacturers and, and uh, showed the new collections and stayed up on trends and did a lot of traveling. And then when I had made the rounds of all my clients, I could uh, then carve out time to do studio work and teaching. And so I did that for many years. And then once our children were grown and, our, uh, and college was paid for, I looked around and decided that I could uh, afford to move um, into making and teaching. And that's what I've been doing for the past few years, and it's just been wonderful. So, And I have time to do things like curate exhibits and write articles and create wonderful 
textile pieces. And so I'm just having a great time. That's great. Well, and I'm excited to dive into talking about them. Yeah. So you, you recently had a solo exhibit called Fiber Trails, which was inspired by your textile travels. And I'm wondering if you could tell me more about that. I would be happy to. So Fiber Trails came about because uh, for a brief moment in time, I'm sad to say it's not there anymore, but for brief moments in time, there was a uh, gallery in the LA area completely focused just on the fiber arts. And they wanted to particularly celebrate um, talent that was available in Southern California. So I approached them about doing uh, a solo exhibit and they said yes. And I was able through Fiber Trails to show several different um, series of, or, of work that I had done that, uh, that used uh, my various travels as inspiration for, for collections. So one group of pieces was called Red Offerings, and it refers to some travel that my husband and I did in Bhutan. And then another was Majestic Stone that was about, uh, that was based on Incan stonework that um, we had observed when we hiked through the, the Sacred Valley. And then another was the Colors of Gujarat, which was based on a trip that I took with a friend uh, to uh, an area of Gujarat called Bhuj. Um, and then the final collection um, in that series was, um, in that show, was Lava Folds. And that was a family trip uh, that we took in 2016 to the Galapagos Islands. And my son had just gotten a new camera, so was roaming around taking all of these wonderful close-ups. And um, at the end of our trip, he showed me some of his pictures, and one of them looked like folded fabric. It was just amazing. So I asked him if I could use that piece, uh, that photograph, as uh, inspiration for a series, and he said yes. So that was the, uh, the, the um, final group in, in, that, uh, in that show. And it was really wonderful to be able to sort of see this body of work that I had been able to develop over a period of a few years that completely integrated our love of travel uh, with my love of textiles. So, hmm. Yeah, it sounds like you have been able to travel to many places and to meet textile artists in a lot of different countries using different kinds of mediums. Yes. And I'm curious how this tra that travel and those people that you meet inspire and influence your own work. Well, I think if you think about the f fiber trails was a, was a visual manifestation of that. And um, I find that uh, travel removes you from your daily concerns and so I think when you travel, you tend to have um, your assumptions disrupted and you're looking at things very carefully because, because uh, the world around you is new again. And I think looking at the world with fresh eyes is something that's easier to do when you travel. And I'd like to think that you can do it in your daily life too, but I think it's more difficult. So... Um, so I like to travel in a way where I have time to experience where I am, like not overschedule and allow serendipity to happen and make time to meet people and make time to talk with them. And my husband knows that on every trip 
there's going to be a textile component because he knows that where I've told him and he knows this, where there are people, there is cloth and I managed to find it. And um, it's been really fun to always find that and, and find uh, our commonalities through the cloth that we make. Do you have any trips on the horizon that you're getting excited about? I've been so, um, this year, 2019, I've been more focused on um, getting this show together. And I'm also, I've also been invited to, um, to teach in different parts of the country. So I would say this is more of a domestic year. Yes, that makes sense. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the show because I wanted to start talking about it. Oh, so sure. You've been, you've been strongly influenced by the textile artist Annie Albers, and you are curating an exhibit for Craft in America called Material Meaning, A Living Legacy of Annie Albers, uh, which is going to feature the work of 10 contemporary American artists and designers who are working in textiles and who are influenced by Albers. And I am excited to talk to you about that. And I'm wondering if you could start out by sharing how you've personally been inspired and influenced by Albers' work. I am happy to do that. Um, well, Annie Albers was one of my earliest influences. Um, I didn't really, well, I, I found her um, in the library at the Philadelphia College of Textiles and Science. I went searching. I've, I love to read and I love to research. So, um, I found two of her books on mm. weaving and on designing um, in the library, and I read them cover to cover and just thought that what she had to say was uh, just really compelling. And she's a wonderful writer, or was a wonderful writer, and she is incredibly articulate and um, brings together uh, historic, you know, ethnographic textiles with uh, a love of the technical side of weaving, a real respect for knowledge of materials and knowledge of weave structures, but then she uses that in a very creative and original way. And so her whole approach to design really inspired me. And the other thing that um, really spoke to me is she became a model for what was possible in the field. Because when I was in school, there were like three armed camps of weaving, and they didn't really talk to each other. One was the, the fiber art group. And if you studied fiber art, that's what you studied, and you approached it in a certain way. And then there was the industrial slash commercial design education, and they taught things in a certain way and completely dismissed the fiber art group and vice versa. And then there was the third group, which was the learning through uh, the, uh, the hand weavers guilds. And they also sort of staked out their own turf. And if you weren't interested in overshot and crackle weave, they didn't want to talk to you. So that's a little bit, uh, I'm, I'm leaving out the shades of gray, but sure. basically my point is, is there were these, all these fragmented areas. And if you wanted to study weaving as a, and wanted to know like the whole gamut of it, you pretty much had to pick one or the other, or you had to hop around from one place to another and cobble together your education that way. And Albers was the first 
person that I ran across who um, got rid of all of those uh, uh, barriers and participated in, in everything. And I just thought it is possible. She did it. So that's, that started my influence. And then, and then I internalized so much of, of uh, her philosophy and, and her teachings that I didn't really actively think about her too much until really just a few years ago when the Hammer Museum asked me to set up uh, her Black Mountain, one of her Black Mountain workshop looms for uh, the exhibition Leap Before You Look, which was all about Black Mountain College and its um, influence on um, the whole contemporary art and design scene. And are you familiar with that show? No, please tell oh, us about it. Okay. It's a, it was a wonderful show that I think reintroduced um, Albers into the larger community. Um, but um, anyway, so, so when I had to do the research um, on her, um, well, let me back up for a second. So I was asked to put together this loom and design and weave a uh, piece of fabric on it that would be in keeping with the aesthetic of the show. And then I asked them if I could also do a couple of demonstrations and maybe gallery walkthroughs and the hammer said yes so as i began rereading some of her writings they all just completely resonated with me and i realized that i had modeled my teaching on how she taught as well so not only had she influenced me as an artist and a designer and a hand weaver um her her teaching methodology spoke to me as well. So it was just, it was really like a, like a homecoming. Mm -hmm. And so out of that show, um, I was asked if I could put together a lecture um, on her for the uh, Southern California Guild of Handweavers. And then I thought if I'm going to, I said, yes, of course. But then I thought, you know, anybody could do research and put together her history. I mean, that's all very well documented, but I want to go in and do some original research and find out what's her legacy. Hmm. And so out of that came an idea to do an exhibition. And so I approached um, Emily Zayden, who's the director of the Craft in America Center, and asked if she would be open to me being a guest curator and doing this this exhibit and she said yes so that's how the show came about that's amazing yeah. i want to ask you more about the show but i want to back up to something you sure. said first which i was really intrigued by this idea that um annie albers was the first exposure you had i don't think you said it exactly like this but okay. to kind of breaking down the different silos in weaving yes and i'm curious um what advice you have for your own students, for other weavers out there to follow in that legacy for people who are really interested in, in being parts of many of those different worlds? I think you have to ignore a lot of the artificial boundaries that are set up and just be curious and pull things together rather than continue on feeling like you have to pick one or the other because it's just not true. 
and I, I think it's gotten better um, because I see it. I see it in the students that I have, and I see it in the uh, diverse range of people that um, that are in our um, that are in our, our local guild. And it may be different because I'm in a big city, but I you know I I do teach at enough different places that um, I see that some of those boundaries are breaking down a little bit. And I hope that will continue. Yeah. Well, I really love that you decided to take this in the direction of talking about Annie Elber's living legacy through curating this exhibit. And I'm curious how you went about selecting artists for the exhibit. And also if you could share a few of them and what intrigued you about their work. Well, sure. So um, I started with the few, like a handful of artists whom I knew personally, and I knew that they that their work reflected um, some of the th- that their work was reflective of an in Albert's influence, and so I <coughs> excuse me I started with them and had conversations with them and looked at their work and and um, and then I asked them often when people are passionate about a certain type of design or in, or inspired by a certain person or aesthetic philosophy, they will know others. So I did a combination of, you know, the the pebble in the pond thing where you throw it in and see where it goes. And then I also um, did a lot of research on the internet. You know, the the Google keyword search is pretty awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so that brought up some some names uh, and I just kind of took it from there, and when I talked with Emily, she felt that um, 10 people would be a nice round number, so I brought a list of potential um, participants to her, and we, we worked together to kind of figure out what would be a, a good mix and um, and we went with the ten that we felt really gave uh, a good overview of um, and mirrored really the breadth and depth of um, of Albert's practice because I wanted um, I wanted it to be a mix of fiber art um, woven prototypes and experiments um, textile design and uh, and functional woven textiles because that's that's everything that Albers did so so I I didn't feel like you know you can't define someone's legacy in the work of 10 artists and it's not meant to be the be-all and end-all to me it's the beginning of a conversation mm-hmm. and um and I also know that that uh She's an international phenomenon, not just an American one, but it was sort of a relief to be able just to focus on American designers because the gallery is called Craft in America. Mm. So, um, so that made it, um, you know, a little bit less overwhelming um, <clears throat> because when I, when I, when I went to, uh, I had the opportunity to go to the, um, to the Albers uh, retrospective at the, at the Tate in, in London, and mm-hmm. there's a whole other group of, you know, UK and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and European artists who I could have invited to, to pretty much 
exhibit the same thing. And, um, and those were all the artists who were doing the, the, um, the events and the, and, and the educational outreach and gallery walkthroughs in London. So, Can you share a few of the artists you included in your exhibit? I would be happy to. Well, one of them is me. Mm-hmm. Because why go to all the work of putting together an invitational show if you don't invite yourself? So full disclosure, I'm Indeed. in it. Um, <clears throat> so, but some of the other artists are, um, and some some are more sort of well known than others. But um, but all of their work is uh, is exceptional. So um, Samantha Bittman, Lois Bryant, Christy Matson, Jennifer Moore, um, Brittany Whitman McLaughlin, Rachel Snack. Susie Taylor, uh, Suzanne Tick, and Marsha Weiss are the other nine. So that's 10 of us all together. And where and when will this exhibit be, and how can people come see it? The exhibit, excuse me, will be at the Craft in America Center here in Los Angeles. And it's opening on the 13th of July, and it's running through the 21st of September. And the other little bit that I want to do a plug for is September 2019 is the um, very first textile month that Los Angeles is going to have. And it's being coordinated by a new organization called Textile Arts Los Angeles. So if you come to see this show in September, there are likely to be a number of other textile-oriented things going on in the city. So Fun. have you curated other exhibits? I'm I'm curious how the curation process and the process of working with other textile artists influences your own work as an artist. Sure. Well when I taught at the Philadelphia College of Textiles, I curated some exhibits there um, because there was a design center there and it was really interesting to to be able to work in the design center as well as teach. Um, and then once I left that, uh, the college, I didn't do like curatorial stuff for a while, but there, were, there was a number of years, um, particularly when I had little kids, I was barely keeping my head above water. So I would work, raise my children, um, do a little bit of studio practice, and just sort of you know, maintain the bare minimum. So that went on for a few years. And then as my kids got older, I joined some uh, arts organizations and we would curate our own shows and put them on. And so that was Designing Weavers. Um, We did that uh, quite a number of years. And um, I've um, installed and and put together shows with, uh, with California Fibers, which is another juried organization that I belong to. And... Then more recently, um, I've, I've juried shows, which is a lot of fun. And for me, the jurying process is um, not just deciding the work that you like and putting it in. It's, um, it's, it's looking at the mission statement of the organization that's sponsoring it and then having the mix of work reflect um, what it is the organization says they're looking for. And so in a sense, you're combining curatorial function with jurying function. 
So I don't feel like I'm a complete greenhorn in being Mm -hmm. a curator, but it's definitely not something that I would consider myself. uh, I don't do it a lot, but it's been really great, and um, I would totally do it more. Um, now that I have the time to pursue it. So, but what's, what's been very wonderful for me is Emily Zayden is such a, uh, an experienced curator that, um, I'm able to go to her and learn the things that I don't know. So that between the two of us, you know, I'm giving her really good content, but she's helping me shape it so that I hit all the deadlines, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So. Absolutely. What have you, what do you feel like you've most learned through the process of curating, working on curating this exhibit? Well, I feel like curating is a really, it's a creative experience. And it reminds me a lot of what, I feel like in a weird way, Curating, weaving, and writing are all really similar in that you're taking all of these bits and pulling them together and making them cohesive. So you're starting with individual elements, and then, dare I say, you're weaving them together. Hmm. And it's a, it's a, it's you're creating an like an orderly narrative out of disorder. And that's really intriguing to me. So I feel like it's, um, even though my body of work this year hasn't been necessarily weaving, my creative expression and my approach to design um, has shaped, uh, uh, has shaped the, uh, how this show has been put together. Yeah, does that make absolutely. sense? It does. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> So obviously this big show in this summer is on the horizon for you. Is mm-hmm. there anything else on your horizon that you want to share about that you're excited about working Sure. On? So I always feel like as long as there's one or two things on the horizon, that's kind of all, all that I need because I need a few deadlines to keep me kind of uh, disciplined and in line because I have so many different interests that I could sort of go off on all these side trails and and kind of not get to work. So I always need to have a few deadlines staring me in the face. So um, what I'm working on uh, as the curatorial process is, is winding down for the moment, I'm working on a keynote speech for the Michigan League of Handweavers that um, to open their conference that is uh, that is in opens in late May of this year. And the keynote speech, is called How String Changed the World. Hmm. And um, I'm having a lot of fun with that. And um, I feel like putting together uh, those kinds of PowerPoint presentations also is you're like getting all these ideas and then you're going back and forth between like storyboarding the images and then coming up with the narration and there's a conversation between the two and then ultimately... Ultimately, a finished product comes out the other end. And I'm never quite sure how it works, but somehow it always does. So, so that's, that's fun. So I'm at the, I'm at the, um, the kind of big idea and, um, and uh, collection of images stage, which is, which, is, which is fun. And then I have to get more organized and make it more linear. 
which is always the more difficult thing. And then, um, and then I'm also hoping to get back very soon. I don't, I don't want to say hoping. I plan. I will <laughs> get back soon to some studio work. I started a new series on reflections um, that I'm really enjoying. Um, that's combining my uh, my printing on fabric uh, and integrating it with with my weaving. And I had just I had done a couple of those and then put those on hold because I switched over into the the curatorial piece. So I'm working on that. Um, and then a third piece that I'm not quite sure yet where it's headed, but I had a ton of fun. I'd love to do more is last, uh, yeah, last month, um, I did a collaborative, uh, educator workshop with the UCLA Fowler Museum where a curate on, on dress and identity and the curator did the walkthrough in the morning. And then I worked with the, uh, with the, the assistant director of their educational programming to do the art making in the afternoon. And it was such a fun and interesting collaboration. I would love to do more of that with some of the museums in LA. So, um, so if there's any museum people listening to this podcast, <laughs> give me a call. <laughs> yes. So anyway, it's, it's fun. It's just, it's just great to, um, to be able to, um, have a sense of um, maybe what you want to do next, and then you you put that idea out there into the universe, and you see what comes back. Yeah. Where can people go online and on social media to learn more about you and your work? Well, um, if you Google my name, all sorts of things will come up. Um, that's always one way. Um, I also have a couple of different websites. I have uh, my main website is CameronTaylorBrown.com, and then I have uh, an Arts Garage LA website, which talks specifically about <coughs> about what's going on in my teaching studio, and it's called Arts Garage because my studio is in my garage. So that's another one. And then um, I'm on Facebook, and um, I also have an Instagram account. Okay, and we'll link to both of those in the show notes okay. for this episode. Do you have any closing advice or words of wisdom for weavers out there? Well, I have a couple of different ones. Um, I would say the most important thing, regardless of how busy you are, is to always make time for your work. And it doesn't have to be a lot of time, but it has to be like you have to try and be consistent and respect that your creative time um, is important and feeds you. So what I used to do when my kids were little and I was working full time and it just seemed like I didn't have any time to do anything, I made appointments with myself where I would just put an X on my calendar for a, even if it was just one afternoon a week or a couple of evenings or something, I would just say, I'm going to disappear and I'm going to go make stuff. And I was just unavailable. And I would say, I'm busy, I can't do it if someone would suggest something. or, um, And that's just so important because if you don't make time for making your work, uh, something else will interfere and, um, and you won't get to it. And then you'll wake up and 20 years will have passed and you don't want to do that. So that's one big one. And the other one that, that I love, and I didn't, this was not my quote, this is somebody else's, 
Chuck Close made this wonderful comment. He said, inspiration is for amateurs. And what he was, what he was trying to say with that is that if you wait for the muse to strike, um, it, it might not. So sometimes you have to just go in and make something concrete with no particular end in mind. And then the process of making unlocks something in yourself and then leads to your next piece. Because we all have fallow moments where we don't know what we're going to do next. And you just have to go in and get started. And then, and then trust that something will come out of it. So those are my, those are my two advice nuggets. Those are two really wonderful pieces of advice. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and about this exhibit and this advice. I, I really appreciate it and enjoyed talking to you. Well, you are so welcome, and um, I enjoyed speaking with you as well. That's a wrap. To see photos of Cameron and her work and a sneak peek of the exhibit she was discussing, check out our show notes at www.gistyarn.com slash episode 59. That's G-I-S-T-Y-A-R-N dot com slash episode hyphen 59. Thank you again to our podcast sponsors, Heddlecraft. Heddlecraft is a digital weaving magazine with the sole objective of sharing the passion for weaving. For more information about Heddlecraft, go to www.heddlecraft.com. Next week on the podcast, Lashan is speaking with Sarah Hajgato. Sarah is a Hungarian natural dyer based in Budapest, Hungary. Over the past year, she has been collaborating with a rural eco-community to grow dye plants and run small-scale experiments in order to repurpose vintage garments with natural dyes. So tune in next Monday for that episode. And until next time, happy weaving! <laughs>